Welcome to Chatter. I'm David Priest. This week, political sociologist and author Kristen Surak on the global citizenship industry. The rights we have as citizens, we often think about them in terms of what we get inside a country. But being a citizen of a country also gets you benefits outside of a country in third countries. Basically, what governments require is either a donation to the government or a particular investment in the country. You do that, you go through some background checks, you can usually bring your family members on as well. And then typically somewhere between three months to a year, you can become a citizen in the country, sometimes without ever having to visit. When I was in Montenegro, I'd be like, oh yeah, citizenship by investment. What do you think they'd say? Oh, the government's so corrupt. <laughs> I would ask them, what do you think of this concept of selling citizenship? And even, even then a lot of people would answer, well, you know, what else do we have? Kristen Surak, welcome to Chatter. Thanks very much for having me on. Uh, a few weeks ago, I saw an updated listing of the world's, what they called the world's most powerful passports. And I think it was a list prepared by Henley and Partners or some similar name that you're very familiar with that I'm not. And not surprisingly, it, it rated them, I think, by visa-free access to other countries. And Europe dominated. Uh, there was, what, France, Germany, Italy. I think Japan was up there. But 194 different destinations were possible there. And then others just right behind with 190 or more were almost all European other than South Korea. Um, unsurprisingly, Afghanistan, Syria uh, were near the, the bottom. And there was a big jump, which was the United Arab Emirates has been climbing in the rankings for years and now is almost in the top 10. And I saw this and it just opened up a world in my mind of questions about how does this happen and how do countries change this and how can you move rapidly in between these categories? And then I thought of you because no one has looked at this, talked more in the media about the citizenship and how it interacts with global elitist culture and, and travel. So thank you for joining me because I have some serious questions about this and you've done the, the research and brought the receipts to be able to answer them. How did you study this? How did you get started becoming someone who really understands this global citizenship and passport industry? Well, in a way, it was really by accident. So I'm a sociologist, and I had been doing a lot of work on international migration, focusing on low-paid workers who go to a country, they work for a period of time, and then they're supposed to go home at the end. These, these are um, called often a guest work program. So I was looking at how people go to a country, work, and then have a hard time becoming citizens. And then around that time, Malta started citizenship by investment. So you could donate or invest in the country and become a citizen with spending very little time there. And I thought, oh, this is amazing. It's like the exact opposite of what I'm studying. Rich people buying citizenship in countries they've never been to. So I thought, you know, this will be just like a little tail end to a bigger book on low-paid labor migration. And I started going to professional conferences around this because there's actually a big industry. And I went to these things and I realized, oh my goodness, this goes way beyond just kind of cash for passports, which was how the media was portraying it at the time. And I thought, wow, there is so much going on here. There's, you know, people wanting it for different reasons. There's this whole infrastructure of intermediaries kind of connecting them to countries and the countries are there as well. It could be huge for these places. And I, it just 
really sparked my interest. And, you know, now nearly 10 years later, <laughs> I, I feel like I've kind of unpacked how this big global market works. There's a whole lot in there that I want to dig into and explore, but I'm, I'm going to go back a few steps. You described yourself as a sociologist, and I think political sociology is, is a specialty there. And as a political scientist, I'm jealous of that because you, you, you basically get two topics that you get to cover and you look at the overlap between them, but also into both. But in your work, you're looking at history, you're looking at business, you're looking at markets, you're looking uh, almost at the anthropological side of sociology. Um, how do you how do you get to do that? I'm so jealous that that you found a, a, a field and a career that allows you to basically dip into almost every discipline to study what you want. That's why I went for sociology. I've had too many wide, varied interests. And I thought, well, you know, sociology, you know, geographers will allow you in as long as you study space, place. And sociologists will allow you to do whatever you want as long as people are involved. And in fact, my first book was on the Japanese tea ceremony. And so I, I leaped, you know, widely across the discipline. Um, to this topic of golden passport citizenship for sale. But it does have a very important connection with my previous work in the Japanese tea ceremony is in that doing this kind of research is enormously fun. So not only did I get to tell a story that it was a, that was about history, about interaction, this anthropological side, the geopolitics of it, the political economy of this, as, as you rightly pick out, I got to do that while traveling to 16 different countries. Yeah. I didn't even know that Vanuatu was a country until I realized it was selling citizenship. And hey, then I had a great research excuse to go there. And so I would go around to these different places and then submit my research expense budget, which was or research receipts um, mm. to the university. And they all happened to be for tropical islands, as was often pointed out to me. There was a little bit more than that. There were some fun global hubs, too. But it was enormously fun to really you know, put my own passport to good work to um, trace how this market operates. It's a fascinating uh, slice of academia to get into where the least fun places you went are places like Dubai, London, and Paris, because the bulk of the research, as I've read up on this topic, you know, it's it's St. Kitts and Nevis, it's Antigua, it's Vanuatu, it's, it's, it's a lot of very comfortable climates that you got a chance to do research in. <laughs> I'm jealous. My my original research for my dissertation um, was was limited to mostly the Arab Gulf region, and I ended up spending you know some very hot times in those. Like you mentioned, the guest workers. A lot of the countries with a lot of the guest workers were where I was most of the time, and uh, I kind of. I kind of wish I would have gone for a study of the Caribbean or the South Pacific, but bygones, right? So as someone who's worked in this area, you described it as, I think, citizenship by investment, um, the CBI, but that's not how I've heard it in the media. It's almost always about buying passports or buying citizenship. Are we talking about the same thing or is there actually a distinction between how the mass media portrays it, and what the actual programs are like? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, in fact, I even with the book title, I hesitated for a long time to call it The Golden Passport, mm. because there's, there is a big difference between 
citizenship and passports. I, I went with it in the end, um, in part because that's what people end up referring to. It's sort of catchy, etc. But I'm really glad you brought this up because what I study is really citizenship by investment. And that's different from just buying a passport and in a couple of very important ways. So any sovereign can grant citizenship to whomever it wants. And you can negotiate this as well, especially if you have a lot of money. A lot of U.S. tech billionaires um, are doing that right now with like, you know, PayPal founders. Peter Thiel has negotiated with the um, government in New Zealand. Snapchat's founder, Evan Spiegel, has negotiated with France and gotten citizenship. And, you, you know, so you can become a citizen by negotiating with the government. You can also just get a passport through a lot of different mechanisms. The citizenship is not equal to a passport. A lot of citizens don't have passports. Most U.S. citizens still don't have passports, but of course they're still citizens. And not all people with a passport from a country are citizens. A lot of people with diplomatic passports, for example, are not citizens of the country that they're representing. Mm-hmm. So, what I'm, but I'm, what I'm looking at with citizenship by investment are really formalized programs that make this opportunity possible. Yeah, and you can go on to any of these government websites and figure out what you need to do to do and just tick the right boxes and then you're in. Basically what governments require is either a donation to the government or a particular investment in the country. It can be in a business or in real estate, they'll, they'll specify. You do that, you go through some background checks. You can usually bring your family members on as well as in, with many naturalization cases. And then typically somewhere between three months to a year, you can become a citizen in the country, sometimes without ever having to visit. And in terms of, you know, what what this costs then, for a single person, the cheapest option on the market right now is the island of Dominica, where it's about 100,000 US dollars. It can be a little bit more once you add in the fees. But if you want, you know, something like Malta, which is a EU member state, EU member state is like becoming a citizen of 27 other countries because you can go live freely around the EU. That will put you back about a million, a little bit less, but but. It, then you have to remember it's for the whole family. <laughs> so okay, so this raises a lot of interesting questions. Uh, you, you talked about guest workers on the one hand, and yet you're talking about minimum hundreds of thousands of dollars, in some cases much more, and some burdens having to do with residency or investments and perhaps time traveling there. Um, that's out of the reach of most guest workers. And so I can understand the media focusing on it as a global elite and focusing on Peter Thiel and others as doing this. But there really seems to be two markets you're talking about that perhaps go through similar mechanisms for some countries, but you've got two different motivations from the individual side for doing this. The ultra wealthy have motivations that I hope you'll explain to us that seem at least to me different than what a guest worker's motivation would be. So let's hit the, the first one first. Let's talk about those global elites and why it is that someone who's a U.S. citizen, presumably, what's the appeal of having New Zealand citizenship? Or if you're someone else who's a wealthy international, probably ultra wealthy international magnet, why do you want to be a citizen of a Caribbean country? Yeah, that's a great question. Um in a sense, this has a little bit less to do with overall wealth than where you were born. So it's interesting. There's one of the things I, I found fascinating in, in studying this field, which I started in 2015. So it's been nearly 10 years now. Um, 
is that there's been this huge expansion of the number of U.S. citizens who are going for this. When I first started looking at this field, it was it was still pretty rare to get um, Americans doing this. And it was usually because they had been an expat for a very long time. You know, they, they weren't in the U.S. They were tired of paying taxes or um, very often tax wasn't wasn't even the main driver. It can be hassle banking abroad, et cetera, et cetera. But since COVID-19 and since the hyper-politicization of U.S. presidential elections, which we're seeing even now once again, there's been a huge increase in demand from U.S. citizens, basically to hedge their bets. It's about having not just a plan B, but a plan C, plan D, plan E, and making sure that all doors are open. Let me let me interrupt you there because I'm, I'm curious about what that means for plan B, plan C, because to get personal, if you don't mind, you're, you're a U.S. citizen. Um, yep. But you also went through a process to also obtain uh, British citizenship, if mm-hmm. I recall. Um, you didn't do it, as, as far as I can tell, as some kind of political escape plan. Um, but what is the escape plan? Because if, if you think there's going to be political chaos in the United States and it will affect you personally to such a degree that you want to have another citizenship, presumably you want to do things like avoid extradition or avoid something that the U.S. government could do to you. But most dual citizenship programs don't do that. So explain to me the plan B, plan C thought process for some of the global elites. Oh, sure. Well, especially for the very rich, very wealthy Americans. It's it's about keeping doors open. Mm-hmm. So especially during COVID-19, suddenly having a U.S. passport was not enough to get you into Europe. Uh, but... If you had, for example, citizenship in Malta, residence in Portugal, one of those options, then you could. Similarly with um, New Zealand, if you happen to have your yacht in the South Pacific and needed to get medical attention, um, that would be one way to make sure you had CYA insurance um, to do so. And that's the thing, I think, with very, very wealthy people. For them, this is, you know, chump change. It's not much. But it does make sure that you have different options open for you. So it's not, it's not, you know, journalists have done excellent work coming up with some criminals and money launderers and sort of bad apples who've gone through the programs, who've gotten through despite the due diligence checks, et cetera, which, which are concerning. But the, the vast majority of this, you know, in terms of future planning or um, the plan B sorts of things, it's, it's a little bit more mundane. And what's interesting too, and this is the, the case, not just with the very wealthy, but migrants of all sorts, especially if they're business people, they'll pick up an insurance policy, sort of plan B, but even when everything is hitting the fan in their home country, they're still reluctant to leave. You know, so Lebanon a few years ago yeah. um, had massive inflation. You know, it was a mo- moment of crisis, you know, especially after the, um, th- there was that massive explosion. A lot of Lebanese business people have uh, options to live outside. They've secured this long in advance, but were very reluctant to leave precisely because their business interests were still there. And so that tends to be the sort of thought process, keeping doors open. At the same time, though, there's another set of wealthy people and not even in my field work. I found it kind of interesting because they would get it was a population that would get described to me as a poor millionaires, (laughs) like poor millionaire. Well, it's people with about one to five million dollars in assets. Mm -hmm. And if you happen to have been born in a country that's in the global south, and ended up doing well. So say you got an engineering, you're Pakistan, you got an engineering degree, you're a tech whiz, and you get a great 
very well-paying job in Dubai, you still only can travel about 35 countries visa-free. Mm-hmm. You can send your, your passport to embassies and get those you know, travel permits. Very often it'll be single entry and you mm-hmm. might have to do dub- multiple entries in order to, you know, for you to carry out your regional responsibilities for that company or whatever. In, in that case, it can be worth one's while. As, as one interviewee I had put it, you know, she, she gave up buying another Mercedes in order to just get one of these passports to, you know, make, make her life, you know, easier as a international business person. That does seem like a good practical trade-off. I mean, if, if, for example, if you're at a certain level in a corporation or as an entrepreneur and you have business meetings that face-to-face facilitation, you know, really is important for, you can't race to a meeting in Paris on a Pakistani passport. But if you get a passport from presumably one of these countries that is uh, enticing, then you could make that meeting tomorrow if you needed to. Absolutely. And that does come up. And what's interesting, too, in this is that all the countries with citizenship by investment programs still have the place of birth in the passport. So it's not as though you're duping the border guards to make you think that you're, you know, Ketitian born in St. Kitts or whatever. You still have the place of birth there. What people will often do in those cases as well is what one person, how one person phrased it to me was complete the passport by getting a multi-entry visa to the U.S. Hmm. Because many countries, their consulates will, you know, go ahead and give you a visa without, you know, too much hassle. If you're from a country with a fairly low GDP, if you already have a multi-entry visa to the U.S. Because they feel like Uncle Sam has done the vetting. You know, you're good to go. If you're good in Uncle Sam's eyes, you're good in our eyes. And so that that Pakistani business person trying to get to that, you know, business meeting in Paris, which is suddenly scheduled two days later, may have already also completed the passport with the U.S. Do you know if that's due to any formal rule or regulation that a country says in, in a legal code or in a regulatory code, if you have an American stamp in your passport or an American visa, therefore you will move to the top of the line? Or is it simply just more of a, a social psychological phenomenon of people processing it, see that and think, oh, that's some kind of stamp of approval for us? Yeah, I think there's a lot of de facto stuff going on there and policy rather than formal law. The U.S. has also been very influential in terms of getting various airport screening programs in different countries like retina scans become the standard as well. So it does carry a lot of sway in terms of screening people for security reasons when it comes to global mobility. Hmm. So I'm I'm an American citizen and I have a U.S. passport and I have found it ridiculously easy to travel to most of the world. And I haven't been to a, a lot of places that perhaps would by, by nature be difficult, but I, I've been to a healthy number of countries in different regions of the world, and I rarely remember having anything other than a, a quick inconvenience, perhaps of getting a visa, although even that's rare for many places. Um, so it seemed to me a U.S. passport is a pretty good one, but the U.S. does not have a citizenship by investment program, like some of the ones that you investigated. So talk about, you know, if the U.S., I'm not sure the U.S. is the gold standard, but from my own perspective, it certainly is, in, is a top tier passport. What are the ones that are most lucrative beyond this Henley and Partners list of most powerful passports simply for visa-free travel, but for other benefits, because you've talked about things beyond just the value of not having to get a visa? 
Yeah, absolutely. That's a really important thing to keep in mind as well. In, in terms of my interviews, most people, the number one reason people would give was easier cross-border travel. But there can be a lot of other motives as well. You know, I, I, it can be cross-border travel in, in the present in terms of visa-free. It can be cross-border travel in the future in terms of this insurance policy, keeping the doors open. But what's interesting, too, is that there can also be business benefits to being a citizen of a particular country, depending on the sorts of bilateral treaties that have been signed between your country and, and other ones. So, for example, Turkish citizens um, get lower import tax rates when they're bringing goods into Europe. So if you're a Turkish citizen and you're running a business into Europe and importing things, or say you're a Syrian business person, it's more, you know, as they would put it, efficient or more cost effective to become a Turkish citizen and use that to start your business running import-export um, into Europe. And we often forget about that because our, our the rights we have as citizens, we often think about them in terms of what we get inside a country. But being a citizen of a country also gets you benefits outside of a country in third countries. Um, and that, can, you know, as you mentioned, the visa-free travel, yeah, the U.S. The U.S. is pretty good on that. You don't really have to bat an eye or think or plan ahead. Um, but it can be a lot of other benefits as well, whether it's the right to work, free mobility, business benefits, as I mentioned before. Um, you, you know, so that that can be a key motive, too. And the Turkish example I gave, it's interesting because... Turkey doesn't have visa-free access to the EU, yet it's the number one seller of golden passports today. And I say seller, I'm kind of, that, that is a bit of a shorthand, you know, it does vet applications. It's, yeah, what's the, the appeal of Turkey? I mean, obviously there's a physical appeal. It's a, a beautiful country, but it's got some, you know, some, some political question marks and difficulties and uncertainty. Now, that's from our perspective, from a Syrian Turkey looks like an island of stability, but still there are some issues involving uh, the government and civil rights and things of that sort. So what are the big appeals of Turkey and why has it moved up so dramatically as a, a major purveyor of this service? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what part of it has to do with the region. So as you mentioned, you know, Turkish citizenship isn't going to give you EU citizenship or visa-free access to the EU, but it's still better than a Syrian, Afghani, Pakistani, Iraqi, Iranian passport. It also will still naturalize Russian citizens. And it's one of the few big countries to be doing that still. Wow. Um, the, and and this, this I find very interesting in terms of the geopolitics as well, because you know we often think of citizenship as the sovereign right of a country. I mean, shouldn't the government get to decide, or the, even the people get to decide who gets to be a member or not? But actually, the U.S. has been pretty successful at imposing its foreign policy onto the naturalization policies of other countries. There's five countries in the Caribbean with these sorts of programs, along with Malta, which has visa-free access to the U.S. Mm -hmm. And the U.S. has leaned on all of them and said, don't naturalize Russians. And they mm -hmm. have stopped accepting applications from Russian citizens. And, you know, sim similarly, when, when Trump started his, um, his travel ban lists, Right. The Caribbean countries fell into line and they would sometimes tweak around that, you know, OK, maybe we'll start looking at Iranians if they've been outside of Iran for the past 10 years, you know, some something like that. You know, a lot of a lot of people in Dubai are actually from Iran who left in 1979. Um, and so they would begin to work around it in, in those sorts of ways as well. But Turkey has not given into those sorts of pressures and yeah. Turkey will still naturalize Russians. Now, I'm old enough to remember, Kristen, when um, Cyprus 
was being mentioned a lot, as well as I think Montenegro and some others, but it was being mentioned a lot as a place for Russians. Yes, the the ultra wealthy oligarchs, but also some of what you call kind of the the poor millionaires, that a lot of Russians were obtaining properties and presumably some citizenship through naturalization in Cyprus and others. But now has Turkey overtaken that for Russia? Oh, for sure. Well, Cyprus shut down its program in 2020 after Al Jazeera exposed um, some massive government corruption going on around these programs. Tell us about that corruption. It seems to me this is rife for corruption when you're talking about making a donation to the government in order to get these benefits. There, There are some legitimate concerns about money laundering and criminal activity that could come up. It's not all mundane. So how did that play out in the Cyprus case? Well, yeah, and, and those those questions are important. It kind of depends on how any of these programs is run, what, what goes on on the ground. So in the case of, of Cyprus, Al Jazeera had some undercover reporters with video cameras who went in and were able to capture on video the um, head of the House of, uh, of Representatives saying that he would basically um, help help provide a workaround to a bogus applicant um, who apparently had a criminal conviction in China, and he would still be willing to to work with that. But this would be done through payoffs to one of his um, colleagues, happened to have been a communist uh, parliamentarian who had a massive um, real estate project. And if you paid 10 times the expected investment amount, they would get you through. So I, I think that that's one of the things that can happen with these programs. The programs themselves, um, especially over time, uh, it depends country to country. But if you look at, say, for example, you know, many of the programs in the Caribbean, Cyprus, um, Turkey is a slightly different case because it kind of runs it on its own. Um, over time, there's been an um, increasing kind of due diligence hiring um big international due diligence companies to do background checks for big international banks to check on who's coming through and make sure people are clean, asking for things like um, police records, running things, you know, not only through um, big international databases of the most wanted, but also past the Americans and, you know, checking to sure that make sure that nobody um, has been refused a visa, um, a travel visa to the UK or to the EU and, and these sorts of things. So a formalized program can operate in a, in a pretty strong manner. You know, you can't expect it to be 100%, but it can be really, really good. However, that doesn't necessarily stop the possibility of working around a formalized program as well, as can happen in any sort of country, too. Um, I recently put together a paper about um, just how people can access passports or visas Um you know, in a relatively easy manner, just by converting, you know, money into these sort of, you know, effectively travel documents or travel permissions. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of easy ways to do it, um, uh, not so just through these programs. You, you know, and, and it's not just about these programs. You've, you've raised the issue of the the vetting that goes on. And I can understand from a government point of view, of course, you want to do some serious vetting. Most countries uh, don't want criminals, money launderers, and others. And there are exceptions to that. They, they do if they give enough money, because for some countries with a low GDP, that, that can be very important for providing public services and other things. But as a general rule, you don't want that. And yet the governments that are smallest 
have the least capability of doing extensive due diligence, especially in places like Yemen and Syria and Pakistan. You, you don't see a lot of, you know, uh, Barbados diplomats who are able to run around and do that directly. So part of this industry from that end is these companies that basically do the work for the governments. Um, describe how that process works in terms of uh, the range of options for governments in terms of providing concessions, in terms of playing the market, or in terms of doing some of it themselves? Yeah, that, that's an excellent question. You know, when I, when I first started working on this, one of the things that I learned very, very quickly is that if you have a country with a population of, you know, St. Kitts, the population is about 55,000 people. Um, Dominica is about um, maybe about 65,000. Sometimes it's only 100,000 people. If you think about what it takes to run a, not just a town, but a whole country with that as your effectively population base, and then especially if you're a small island, you have to import everything on top of it. It's really, really challenging. And it what's, I think, also important to keep in mind too, especially with these microstates, that is countries with a population of less than a million. Often they've got huge diasporas because the real go-getters know that their real opportunities are elsewhere. So these are cases I found very interesting where the quote unquote nation, the members of the, you know, the group tend to be much more very globally dispersed. They're very different than just what's the population inside the country in the first place. And then you can have a lot of inter-regional migration um, as well. So, it be, you know, it becomes a complicated story in terms of identity and how we imagine countries to be constituted. But this point of low infrastructural capacity is huge. Um, you know, even putting up a, an embassy abroad costs a lot of money, being able to, you know, access really good databases and carry out really good assessments, knowing, knowing how to read bureaucratic documents produced in another country for another bureaucratic system and know what that means and be able to assess that. And maybe it's a country where there's still a very big cash economy. So what does that mean? If a person has accepted cash, are they a criminal? Or is that just the way that business is, business is done in that place? How do you know? And so that's where I think this increasing importance of professional due diligence firms has, has been really essential for these programs to really begin to streamline. So what, what the, the core part of the market, the main parts that I'm looking at in terms of the book, you know, it doesn't, you know, Cambodia sells citizenship, and I don't think Cambodia is doing this stuff. But the countries that are really dependent on it, um, and that also have things like the US pressuring them, do hire the, the same due diligence companies that major global banks hire to do um, boots on the ground checks of individuals. So they'll have a network in each country. They'll have people who are used to, who, who will be able to, you know, go to different offices, check on the identity of the person, who are used to being able to interpret those documents, and they'll write a report for the countries. Mm -hmm. Now, what the bureaucrats in that, or the politicians even in that country does with those reports is another question. But um, there is, there has, I think, been an important role for the private sector almost in these programs in order to make them uh, more solid than they would be if just the government were running it on its own, um, which is, you know, some people would say, oh, my God, that's very neoliberal. But when we think about it, there's actually in terms of international migration, there's a lot of outsourcing to private sector companies. So, you know, if, you, if you're getting on a plane to travel internationally, 
what is, you know, who's checking your passport? It's mm -hmm. the airline workers. Yeah. Um, for example, it's not bureaucrats from that country who are stationed in every single airport to make sure you're the right person. So in that sense, you know, it's part of this larger network interface between the public and private sector. Mm. This raises so many questions. Um, you know, the due diligence firms, obviously for credibility, because they work for multiple governments, have an interest in doing a good job. And presumably many or most of them do. But there may be a per perverse incentive here too, because at least presumably some of these programs, the government will pay the firms for successful applications. And the more applications they bring in, the better, because the government wants these things to happen. Well, that creates, uh, you know, perhaps the firms looking the other way on some questionable things that might not be easily discovered by the government independently. Did you, did you find that that is happening regularly or, or rarely or almost never, that the, that perverse incentive possibility of earning fees by pushing people through the system is allowing people to get through that probably shouldn't? Uh, so, so there. So, thinking about this it, citizenship industry, as I call it, sort of the citizenship by investment industry, there's different types of private sector actors who are involved. So, the due diligence firms, yeah, they're working for different countries. They're also working for major banks, and the citizenship stuff is small beans for them. And they're not going to put their big, bigger reputation at risk by getting payoffs for for letting people through. But what you're referring to in terms of the, the you know, so they get a fee. In fact, applicants, there'll be like a, a $7,000 application, you know, part of the application fee will be for due diligence and that will get um, paid to the due diligence companies in most cases. You know, what, you know, what sort of packages or things they negotiate on the ground, what quality or standard of due diligence that are they, are they um, contracting a company for is, is another empirical question, but that's the standard format it takes. Um, but at the same time, you have, you know, what I call in the book service providers, um, you know, which is basically a string of intermediaries that connect the applicant to the country. And this is, you know, usually a pretty long subterranean string of people. So you'll get, I'll lay out that string first before talking about some of those perverse incentives. So, you know, say you want to apply for citizenship in one of these countries. How do you do it? Well, you know, actually, if you're a U.S. citizen, it's probably not too hard because you probably have pretty straightforward documentation. They'll ask for like your tax returns and bank statements and stuff like that. But if you're doing it from a sort of a global south country where tax is a complicated thing or like a Chinese tax return can be like massive and massively confusing and all that, you might just hire a person to do the paperwork for you. Sure. And that person may or may not know what's expected in the country where they're applying, where <laughs> that person is thinking about applying or know, know that full range of options. Yeah. So they might partner with another firm that kind of knows how to, what those bureaucrats are looking for, what it takes in that country, what are good investment options, et cetera. And then that firm might partner with another firm that helps us just you know, do the paperwork of assembling the application. But then they'll probably also have a partner in the country that's you know, doing the citizenship because you, if anything goes wrong on the ground, or if you have any questions, if a bureaucrat comes back and says, what is this? Why was this person divorced? You know, where are the children now? You know, whatever you need someone there who can answer that question quickly or follow up and be like, you know, why is this delayed, et cetera. So then you already have something like four links in the chain of these service providers that are just, you know, 
trying to get the application through, but then also making money off of fees doing that. Sure. And then on top of it, when you have a competitive environment, so as I, as I mentioned before, there's five Caribbean countries that do this. They're all re offering relatively similar options. It's all for these countries. A massive source of income can be up to 30% of GDP or so. Governments can be getting more from selling citizenship than they do in all taxes combined. You, you know, so it can be hugely important. So countries have an incentive to get you know, get more market share, especially, you know, from these near competitors. So they do often um, then offer um, incentives or bonuses to service providers for bringing in applications, meaning approvals. So they, they don't do, as far as I know, I haven't heard of any cases where they're, they'll still pay one of these incentives for an application that they reject. Okay. It needs to be an application that they that they're willing to approve in the end. Yeah, um, that helps. But that yeah, helps. You, it's something that <laughs> there, there's a, there, it's it's a big business. <laughs> it really is, and it it seems to me there's some parallel, an imperfect one, of course, but some parallel to the global elite travel industry, in that everybody in the system makes a healthy profit. And in this case, you talked about sometimes multiple intermediaries that all serve a purpose, but everybody is making a profit. And normally you have a, you know, supply, demand, cost curve issue going on there that would, would regulate this to some degree. But when you're talking about the ultra wealthy, they don't mind an extra $7,000 charge here, or even 70,000, or in some cases, $700,000 to get the best, most efficient process, even if that means using seven other firms to help grease the skids a little bit. So it creates this weird industry of uh, probably very healthy profits for a whole lot of different type, types of businesses along the way. And that's that's okay with both sides, both the, the, if you will, the buyer and the seller. Yeah, I found that very interesting as well. I mean, it does raise that question of, well, all right, why don't you do it yourself? put together your application. Maybe you need a local lawyer to submit it, but why not just do the homework and do it yourself? And I do think it's that combination of ease. Nobody likes to deal with paperwork. Um, and, you know, so if you can afford to pay somebody else to do it, why not? Right. Uh, and then also, and learning how to work a bureaucratic system. I mean, a lot of people pay other people to do their U.S. taxes because it's a hassle, you know, so you basically get an expert to do it for you because you, you know how that works. And it's I, what I also found interesting is it, it's where, ironically, these international borders that people are looking to smooth by getting a new citizenship are precisely the ones that are profitable for this industry as well, because you don't know what kind of investment to make in a country. Or should you just donate to the government or should you do a real investment? You know, will you get a return on the investment? You, you know. Who know who knows what's going on in St. Lucia if you've if you've never been there before, and especially if you're in Shanghai. So I think it's it's also um, that um, those knowledge gaps that people are paying um, to smooth. And what I find interesting in you know of course in the end one of the things with all the profit making going on in the industry is that it does commissions are have become massive in some places. And all of, a lot of that in the end sort of eats into the potential economic benefits for the country, unfortunately. So in, in, to that degree, the, you know, the country does tend to lose in the end. But in some ways, you know, I had a, a conversation recently with a friend about um, surrogate mothers. And it can cost upwards of 500,000 U.S. 
dollars for a you know to get a surrogate mother, and the actual the woman who's doing this with her body gets maybe thirty thousand or forty thousand, something like that. It's a mm. it's an enormous differential mm. in terms of what the industry strips off and what the right. actual you know person doing is. And in that sense, I think. The citizenship industry, I don't, it's, it's not, it's not 99 to one, it's not a 90, but um, it is also one where countries don't benefit as much as they can because of a lot of these business relationships. We've, um, we've already mentioned St. Kitts more in this conversation than in hundreds of hours of previous podcasts combined. Um, but there's a reason for that is St. Kitts was a trailblazer in many ways when it comes to the citizenship uh, by investment. Um, talk through the decision-making that went into the creation of that program. And then I think perhaps even more interestingly, how it evolved due to both internal and external pressures. Yeah, St. Kitts is, often comes up in these conversations and it's been a really interesting case to watch over the years. So it started off with this economic citizenship law into place in 1984 a year after I got independence from Britain. And um, basically because they really needed the money. I, w- I went down to, to, I've been to St. Kitts twice. Second time around, I was tipped off by the journalist Oliver Bellows to where to find the best source of the government archives. And it turned out that the former minister of finance ran an auto part shop now that was like one block away from the government building. So I went in and he allowed me to go back and look at his files, which were all in the back of the auto part shop. And you can look at, you know, some, some of the debates that they were having. And the the big debates were like, what kind of stamp are we going to have? Because this could be a big moneymaker. <laughs> and then like, what else can we do? So they got this law on the books. Um, and um, and I, here, here I must I must admit that the sort of best investigative work really is by Oliver Bello in his his book Moneyland, um, tracing how it worked in its early years. Some some of the you know the cases I even met a person who got citizenship in those early years who was running a hotel um, in the country and you know had taken it over from his father. Um, and some of them, you know, it would also began to get a little bit gray and dodgy in places where there were drug runners coming through. And, um, it, you know, it wasn't exactly a completely formalized program. The, the old um, applications were, I think, two pages or three pages long. And, you know, it was sort of like name, address, what languages do you speak? You know, there was nothing on what's your source of funds? How did you make your money? You know, send in your police background checks for the places that you've lived over the past 20 years. None of that. It was pretty easy peasy. Um, um, and then what, but, it, and it, but it was also kind of not, you know, so there was a, there was a lot of gray stuff going on. It wasn't completely formalized. And then in, in 2000 and, Six sort of very famously, um, uh, Christian Kalin, who's that who was was the head of um, Henley and Partners, sort of a wealth planning and residence planning firm, went in um, and worked with the government to make it a more formalized procedure, something that people in the business world would sort of recognize. You know, he sort of you know pushed pushed more formalization. The application lengthened something to the extent where people at people at the big four accountancies or you know law, law firms or whatever 
would be able to think, well, I can offer this to my clients and it's not going to be just a case where the government, you know, new government will come in and will erase the passports. And that used to happen a lot. Um, in the 80s and 90s, especially when it became clear that Hong Kong would go over to China, there was a lot of sort of like passport deals, people buying stuff from rogue embassy people, mm. one government issuing passports, and the next government coming in and canceling all of them. And so, so Kalen went in and helped formalize this program. In do, doing so, he also created a very lucrative contract for his own company to help the government run it. So they were collecting $20,000 for each application that went through at the time. And you could also ask, you know, does it make sense? Is that a conflict of interest? Um, in terms of the division of labor in, in that sort of case. Um, but that's sort of where where the thing was, with the state of play in the early 2000s. And more and more countries in the Caribbean started getting on board. It became a model that could be exported, you know, and Henley and Partners was um, would knock on people's doors, but other competing firms working in the space would also start doing that um, and getting trying to get more countries on board because it's very obviously very, very lucrative for them sure. as well. And I want to reinforce how understandable this is from the perspective of these countries. Very, very low populations in most cases very poor resource base, meaning not a lot of chances to in enhance GDP and therefore public services and other goods um, by any other means. So this kind of makes sense from their perspective. And as you've said, for some of them, it's a very significant percentage of their, of their national income. Um, now that's different for most European countries. That is and they've also gotten into this game. We talked a bit about Cyprus, but Malta has been a big one in the past. Some others have explored it. Now Turkey's playing the game. But for European countries, there's a different dynamic in that, especially the ones that are EU members or prospective EU members, you've got this supranational organization that on the one hand acknowledges naturalization is the province of individual member states on the other hand, takes a strong and understandable interest in who has free access across the union. So talk through that dynamic and how it's played out with the, the EU kind of evolving to play more of that role in soft regulation of the citizenship industry from European countries. Yeah, what I, what, there, there, that's also been a very interesting transformation. It, back in 2013, when Cyprus began expanding its program after the, um, the quote-unquote haircut imposed by the um, you know, three major institutions with the European Union, the European Parliament recognized its citizenship, that it had a citizenship by investment program, but said, we don't have confidence over it. That's the, that's the purview of EU member states. A little bit later, when Malta started doing this, it was all over it. And part of that is a story of the politicization in the case of Malta, a very complex story of power politics. And there, I'll just refer you to the book because it's it's a complicated one to kind of lay out very briefly here. But that got the European Parliament and the European Commission got this on its radar and made it into like a really big thing within those, those two institutions. Um, Oh, what's what's interesting there is, and maybe I say this because I'm an academic, where I'm always sort of asking questions you, uh, of these institutions, like what's behind it, or you, you know, what's mm -hmm. going on here. What's interesting there is that with Malta, probably a little bit more than Cyprus, Malta requires applicants to have already gotten a Schengen visa for Europe. 
meaning that it, it requires all of its applicants to already have gotten visa-free access to Europe. You know, so in that sense, it's not a backdoor to access into the EU in that sense. Um, you know, there's there's different forms of, of compliance going on there as well. But this has not been popular with the European Parliament and the, the European Commission. And they, they have successfully pressured. Um, Moldova is not an EU member state. It's in the accession process. But they did successfully pressure Moldova to end its program. They did also successfully pressure Montenegro to end its program. They gave it a little bit of extra time, but then, you know, said, no, no, you've got to end it now. What's interesting, though, is that the, the EU has not, as far as I am aware, um, pressured Turkey to end its program. And Turkey has made no clear moves to align with EU interests there. Hmm. At the same time, though, the EU also pays Turkey six billion euros to keep refugees out of Europe. So Turkey is also home to somewhere between two and three million Middle Eastern refugees. It's the biggest refugee host country in the world right now, um, while it's also the biggest seller of citizenship at the same time. And in both cases, the government is effectively monetizing migration. Right. Absolutely. So I, I want to turn to the, the the true sociology of this um, and, and what, what almost seems like anthropological work of some of the, the 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 actual people involved on this and i'd like to focus on the the buyers if you will the people seeking global citizenship because i would bet that if you asked 100 people on the street and this is probably the only kind of research that you didn't do um but if if you did polling in the united states and asked 100 random people how they feel about the concept of paying for citizenship somewhere um I think most people would associate it with things like corruption and criminal activity. It was just that that's the the mental model that comes up, but that's not the narrative that comes up in other places around the world. And you've been there and you've talked to hundreds of people who have been involved in this from those, those source countries. How do those narratives differ in terms of how people see the, the prospect of buying citizenship? Yeah, that was one of the most interesting things I found in doing the research. I didn't have time to really embed myself for months and months and get into those, you know, deeper conversations about what what does national membership mean to you or or whatever. But whenever I traveled, I did ask whomever I could find. I, you know, I said, "I'm I'm working on this. What do you think? Or what are your opinions? What is?" And one of the things that that struck me most in Saint Kitts or was that there was a huge range. Probably the most positive reception I found in St. Kitts, where I talked with about 20 people who aren't involved in the industry, just kind of locals who are, you know, selling stuff on the streets or working at the SIM card shop or, you know, one of the local librarians. And for the most part, 19 out of 20 people said that they were okay with the concept of selling citizenship. They were you know, the, the basic response was, what else do we have? Um, and there could be actually even some cases, some big, some very prominent nationalism around it. We've got this program. We invented it. Now the U.S. is trying to shut us down um, was, was the response I got in some cases. Other people, it was usually if they supported the government in power, um, they've got regular turnovers in the elections. If they supported the government in power, they thought the program was great and the previous government ran it into the ground. They supported the previous government. They would say that it used to be great, but the current government is completely corrupt. They're running it into the ground. 
people would ask, you know, you know, this, this is supposed to be bringing in a lot of money. We don't see all of it and where it's going. And so there'd be important questions about how that money was being used that would come up. But the concept of selling citizenship was strongly supported <laughs> in St. Kitts. In other places, um, it, there could be more hesitancy. Malta was probably at the other end where it had become very politicized. And after the murder of Daphne Caruana Galizia, was very politicized, you know, even more extreme with a lot of street protests. Um, and, you know, and, and so there you could, you know, it was a much more divisive political issue. In Cyprus, I was there two weeks before national elections, wasn't even on the electoral radar. Nobody even mentioned it. Nobody cared. But that was before this big Al Jazeera expose. When I was in Montenegro, the first thing out of anybody's mouth was, I'd be like, oh, yeah, citizenship by investment. What do you think? They'd say, oh, the government's so corrupt. <laughs> and, but it was interesting. After all, that I would, I would ask them, what do you think of this concept of selling citizenship? Do you think? And even, even then, a lot of people would answer, well, what else, can, you know, what else do we have? Now, the people seeking this, um, harder to get to many of those people, but from the exposure you did have to the people who were trying to get citizenship, um, obviously we've already talked about the different motivations for, you know, refugees or uh, relatively less wealthy people versus the ultra wealthy, but um, did they feel like this was a right they had to try to go for the best citizenship out there that of course we should be able to buy essentially potentially buy a passport or did you get the sense that they saw it as they kind of had the big con that they they understood that they were in fact uh if not duping the system that they were playing the system to their advantage because they had the tools to do so it, it well it, number one it was difficult to get individuals who are actually going through these programs in part because there's there can be a lot of concerns about privacy um, also, because wealthy people tend to be, you know, it's sort of like, what, you know, what, why should I talk to you? What's in it for me? All I see is risk. Right. Um, right. You know, so so it it was difficult. I talked to a lot of service providers, but I did get, I think, about nearly 20 people who had done the programs or or were looking at options to get, get what they thought about this. Um, and there, in general, there wasn't a sense of, I, I found the complexity of the answers very interesting. It wasn't a sense of, I'm just going to buy this in because I can do it and I'm going to dupe the system. There was a lot of um, kind of, especially for people from the global south, recognition of the inequalities between passports and what that means if you're being active and successful in a globalized world. Um, I remember one interviewee from Iran, when I would push her on any of her answers, she would say, you just don't understand because you've got a privileged passport. You know, you don't understand what I have to deal with. Yeah. Um, at, at the same time, there were also interesting, I remember talking with a couple of young people where their parents had been successful in business. This was a very common thing, but, you know, people would say, but I also encountered this, you know, sort of face-to-face -face as well. Their parents had been successful in business and they didn't want their children to face the same barriers that they did. So they would be getting citizenship for the children, but not, not even necessarily from, for themselves. Hmm. And sometimes these children, you know, so they'd be young adults yeah. in effect, but the parents were, you know, in a sense, were, you know, trying to make their lives better. And sometimes they would be, you know, um, effectively third country kids. They would have been born in a country where their parents didn't have citizenship and moved multiple times and went to international schools. 
and didn't even have a very strong anchoring citizenship identity in the first place. Some people I spoke to did have a very strong anchoring citizenship identity. Some people, some people didn't. Most people didn't like the term global citizen because they saw, you know, they either identified strongly with their home nationality or they um, saw this as, you know, sort of fluffy stuff that didn't capture the complexities of their lives and, um, you know, didn't see nation states as important to their own identities in that sense. So I, I found that very interesting, actually, trying to pick apart that. They're trying to get at, you know, what does this mean in terms of how people are seeing this? Yes, they were being instrumental, and none of them saw them, themselves as really becoming new national members of this new country. But for many, you know, but at the same time, a lot of the countries them, themselves, at least from the, the kind of the middle class people working with this this stuff was kind of like, but they're not coming in the first place. It's not like they're creating migration problems or a two-tiered society, is it, you know? <laughs> you know, isn't that actually better? Um, they're being yeah. instrumental around citizenship. Right. And Good. what's interesting in looking at wider sociological literature on this is that people with quote unquote bad passports, no matter where in the class spectrum they are, tend to think about citizenship more instrumentally. Mm. You know, if you're from a low, low income to a mid income country, you naturalize as soon as you can. If you're from a high income country and you have, you know, you wait till in the case of the U.S., you wait till you have to leave because it's by naturalizing that you keep the door open. You, you know, I live in Britain where as soon as Brexit happened, just about every British person I know who had an you know, um, Irish grandparent began trying to apply for Irish citizenship so that they could keep that an EU passport in their back pocket because it keeps options open. So people can be very pragmatic about citizenship as well. Yeah. yeah, you raise an interesting point there that we we haven't addressed, which is that there are other ways of naturalizing and other than buying citizenship. And many of them are, um, you know, heritage based, um, you know, famously countries, you know, Ireland, uh, Italy does it, Romania does it, Israel does it. Uh, so many countries do it. And that doesn't involve these. You may still want a lawyer in country. You may still want processing help with the application, but it doesn't involve this huge chain of intermediaries. Um, but you also bring up the issue of the global South and issues of equity that come up here. And it's it's like we have the the extremes. On the one extreme, you have the fact that where one is born has more impact than anything else on one's status in life. And it's something that's completely outside of any individual's control. So that pushes you to say, well, shouldn't there be a way of, in a sense, uh, leveling the playing field by allowing people to obtain citizenship in other countries. On the other hand, it's it's not the mass population of the global south that has the opportunity to do this. It is largely an elite phenomenon, however you define elite, because of the cost, because of the contacts, because of the networks uh, and the ability to even travel. So it raises a whole lot of issues about not what is going on, but what ought to be going on uh, from from a perception of equity towards the global south. Yeah, and and all of that is a, you know wraps into really complicated debates that at the, the extreme within the social sciences come to you know this thing of open borders. Why not just open the border? You know, you know, presently all countries are selective about who they're willing to let in, and it's generally generally selective based on some sort of family slash ancestry connection or 
money in some form or another. And that can be money because you're in a you're from a wealthy country, <laughs> you know, so you're a US citizen with great visa fee travel um, and easy to get, you know, other sorts of visas. It can be money that's been transformed into particular skills like nursing degrees, or in my case, a PhD that, you know, enabled me to get a work permit for the UK that I eventually turned into citizenship. So unless one is willing to go for completely open borders, which I think it's an interesting concept to debate, um, I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon because I think country borders have become useful to, you know, it's they're, they're a key part of capitalism, the anchor rule of law. Um, I don't see them going away anytime soon. Um, but, you know, so there's going to be the, those principles of selection. The other thing that goes on with this, though, because, you know, people, you know, this question of isn't this unfair or whatever, or the people often will say, aren't they jumping the queue? Aren't they displacing others? And usually there's not real displacement in terms of this stuff in migration policy. The other thing is most migration policies or mobility policies are incoherent. <laughs> They're made up for different reasons at different points of time, addressing different, different lobbying groups. They can be really, really incoherent. So, uh, you, you know, it is, yeah, part of the unfairness of the world that we've got these, that citizenship can be because it's inclusive, it's also exclusive. And that countries um, you know, set up borders that are more or less porous, depending on where you're from. It can also be useful for employers and economies to render people into illegal migrants, denying them papers, um, for example, rather than regularizing them, because you can exploit people more easily if um, they don't have papers, et cetera. So, the, yeah, these are these are really complicated debates and so difficult to untangle. But I think right. this little angle on it, it highlights this intersection of you've got intra-country inequality between the rich and poor. The people who can afford this as a way out and people can't. And intra-country inequality um, between you know, places where it doesn't matter. You know, I'm a U.S. citizen. Sure, I'd like an EU passport, but I'm kind of okay without it versus had I been born in Pakistan and Pakistan was my only country of citizenship, in which case, you know, I had a student um, last year who said, yeah, I wanted to go to France during spring break because all my friends were, but I couldn't do it because, you know, I can't get the, I can't get the visa in time. Wow. Um, it also reminds that, you know, there's not a lot of demand for these programs in Latin America, in part because, as you mentioned, there's these generous ancestry options in European countries, which people right. want. And, but it happens also then to be, a whiter part of the Latin American population that can qualify for these, where those of indigenous or um, enslaved backgrounds will have a harder time, you know, they probably won't have, they're less likely to have the correct ancestor to open up this as an option. So if you have, it's also one of those things where, yeah, if you have the right heritage, you're in too. Yeah, it's also related uh, in terms of, you know, equity and ethics uh, to the issue of, of taxes. And one of the biggest surprises to me, uh, reading some of your writings on this was that the citizenship by investment really isn't as much of a tax dodge as people would think it is. It's not people are trying to become a citizen of Dominica or St. Lucia or something in order to avoid taxes, because it is so much based on residency. And most of the people doing these CBI programs to the Caribbean are doing it in order to perhaps have that citizenship, but they don't want to actually live there 184 days a year. So it doesn't actually affect taxes that much, both for that reason and because so much of the global elite 
it's capital gains that's doing it and the different tax structures. But to me, that was a bit of a surprise. And I'm curious if, if that struck you as odd when you were researching it and what else surprised you as you dug down into this, this whole industry, what else kind of struck you as something that you wouldn't have expected before you started the research? Yeah, gosh, I've been doing this research for so long that it all becomes this kind of wacky world becomes suddenly normal <laughs> after a while. I mean, what you bring up in terms of tax really is the case. What I found is that tax is complicated. And as you mentioned, you know, if you're wealthy, it's capital gains tax, you know, rather than income. Wealthy people also often live off of debt because you're not paying taxes on it. Physical presence is important. What I also found, too, is that, you know, part of it is um, if you're from a developing country or um, global south country, the government may not always be very efficient at collecting taxes, um, in which case, you know, it's not even an issue. It's not tax tax evasion because it's kind of like tax isn't the issue in the first place. Um, you know, so... So in that sense, it is the, the the main group for which it is it is an issue is U.S. citizens who unusually have to pay U.S. taxes on their global income. But as I was talking with an expert in this field who told me, no one with more than ten million U.S. dollars isn't structured, meaning that they haven't worked out alternative ways to, yeah. do, you know, use this to lower their taxes, often to about three percent. Um, mm without this. And in fact, if this were really a great tax job dodged, you would have huge numbers of Europeans, Americans, you know, Canadians doing it, and you simply don't. But one of the other things I found very interesting, too, is that sometimes it's more ben foreigners have more benefits in a country than citizens in particular domains. And it can be like, what? What do you mean? But the key cases I came across of this were, um, if you're if you're from you know, a country, especially if it's, um, you know, developing country, global south, however one wants to use those categorizations, and those are those are complicated categorizations. Um, and you don't necessarily trust the government. There can be a lot of government corruption going on. Um, you don't know you're, you started a business, you're doing well. You don't know if they're just going to decide, well, you know, we're going to find some sort of excuse and seize your assets, or we're going to find some sort of excuse and shake you down for whatever X amount of money. Um it can be useful to pick up citizenship in a foreign country, number one, because there might be incentives for foreign direct investment. So you suddenly get to, to make the most of, of those bonuses. But you can also make claims to bilateral international treaties and business investment protections under them and potentially international arbitration courts. So say you're a Vietnamese business person and the Vietnamese government decides to shake you down. You can you know, make a claim in international arbitration court. Um, which otherwise, because if you're there as a business person only on your Vietnamese citizenship, you have to be subject to Vietnamese courts. And you might not trust those in terms of their independence from the government as well. So in that case, being a foreigner brings you more rights. And I did encounter a couple of real cases of that. Another one would be China. This used to be the case more. Now, I, I heard one or two stories of this going on, um, of people talking about clients doing this in Taiwan, where International schools are hugely popular. Everybody wants to put their kids in them, you know, English language training and all that. And so international schools put limits on the number of locals, whether Taiwanese or Chinese, who can apply for those schools. So wealthy parents might pick up a passport somewhere else to make their kid foreign enough to get into oh, wow. the school. 
whether that works in practice or not, and whether that is also that passport is also accompanied by an envelope to the principal or whatever that be a, yeah. that could be another question too. Right. But that's but another that case where people might you know try to become foreign. Yeah, that is surprising. That's not something that's that's intuitive. But once you you understand it, it does make sense why someone in a country would want their kid to have a different passport to have better access to the things they didn't. That's fascinating. Um, I want to point out one thing that. Um, you refer to in your book, which is a database that you've developed of uh, it's a comprehensive uh, assemblage of statistics about the citizenship um, by investment and residency programs. Um, talk about the collection of that information and and how you use it and uh, if and how other scholars have access to it. Yeah, that was a lot of work. It was basically collecting every single set of numbers I could on the programs, doing a lot of information requests to different governments, looking at what's on government websites, looking at newspapers, looking for you know other other third party reports, etc. Trying to triangulate where possible, and you know, and numbers in in these terms are, are very complicated. There's a lot that's been said about the lack of transparency around the programs, and I think for any kind of researcher, having good numbers is important. But it's kind of true of any kind of research, especially any kind of even migration research. Getting good numbers out of governments is really hard, no matter what kind of visa category you're trying to study. And it can be tricky, too, in part because, like, for example, the Malta process took at least a year. And people would make the investment, you know, they would start the application, make the investment at a certain point and then get, get the citizenship issued at another point. And that might be in the next year, might be in, even in the following year. It, that was a citizenship by investment program, the residence by investment programs that can take even longer. So you have these staggered things. So the numbers aren't adding up. And sometimes a bureaucrat goes back and counts in a different way. And so then the numbers will change retroactively. And then you're stuck going with the data set, you know, which ones do we go with? What's going on here? Or, you know, so it can be really complicated you know, trying to figure out what which numbers to use, which numbers to go with. But I put them together as best I could, and it's not public yet. Yeah, that's a lot of work to do to assemble that, which is amazing. Presumably, some of these firms, the Henley and Partners types, have, have similar collections of data because they need it to understand where to go and what to do, but maybe not across the broad spectrum because they specialize in a particular slice of the process. Yeah, I don't think they care about stuff like approvals, family members, demo, you know, the basic demographic stuff that I would be interested in as a, they, they would care about what numbers mean in terms of their business. Yeah. <laughs> they wouldn't care about, you know, it, how much investment, how much is the actual business investment this country is getting from the program. Right, right. Whereas I do, because I want to know the economic impact. Right on. Well, you've You've mentioned already that you've done work on uh, the, the the sociology of the Japanese tea ceremony and its representations. You've done work now on issues having to do with migrant workers and citizenship by investment. Um, what's next on your research agenda? Digital nomads. Digital nomads. Uh, talk through that. What, first of all, what do you mean by that? And um, where is the where is the research searchlight on it? So my current project is looking at digital nomad programs. And, you know, there, there's been some less kind of formal academic studies and more sort of media accounts of 
the rise of these, you know, kind of temporary tech workers who can go anywhere, work, you know, whatever, you know, moving from Brooklyn to Mexico City, transforming whole neighborhoods, you know, going from Paris to Lisbon, transforming whole neighborhoods, etc. What I'm interested in, in in my project, though, is what I see, what's interesting with digital nomads, as opposed to citizenship by investment or residence by investment, is here we have countries trying to latch on to what they define as a desirable population, get some economic resources from them, but then they let go of them at the end. So it's not an immigration story of a person moving from country A to country B. These are temporary visas, and a lot of them have legal, you know, legal provisions, meaning that you can't turn it into citizenship. Mm. You know, it is meant to be temporary. Mm. And so, and they'll have limits on, you know, how often you can, how many times you can renew them. So it's really countries grasping onto a population for a temporary amount of time, letting go of, the, of them again. And then these populations trying to decide among countries as well. So it's a kind of I, weird market that moves around that question of countries and people and mobility and borders and where are you going to be? And so that's, that's the stuff I'm playing with at the moment. It is such an interesting take on migration and workflows because yeah, you can have a village in North Macedonia that sets up this wonderful little enclave with perfect Wi-Fi and beautiful scenery and all of this, but it's inherently temporary for the people involved. They're, they're not seeking to make a life. They're seeking to have an experience. Um, and it's not tourism. So it, you can have some lessons from tourism, but probably the wrong lessons if you apply them uh, incorrectly. Um, fascinating. Well, we look forward to hear, seeing more of your work on that front, but we can't let you go without reaching into our chatterbox and asking you a random question. Kristen. Who is someone in your field or a related one, which basically touches on everything in the social sciences, whose work more people should be following? Ooh, Jason Sharman, who's done some really stellar work on offshore um, and the complexities around it really kind of unpicking um, how that how that whole world works. Excellent. Well, that's that's good for, for listeners who are intrigued and want to dig deeper on on related parts of this. Um, Kristen, thanks for sharing so much time with me talking about global elitism, the citizenship by investment industry and these related issues. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Thank you.